Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. This week will be another episode of Africans Against the World, a class that I offered at the Hanley Road uh, Journey Church in St. Louis, Missouri. This will be week five of that study, and I basically... I titled this one after Moses the Black, Abba Moses the Black, one of the lesser-known desert fathers who came from modern-day Ethiopia, likely. But um, and the, at the end, uh, as, I, as we were going along in the class, I ended up doing about a 15-minute little summary of where we'd gone so far in Africans Against the World, and a little bit of my idea of why I think uh, that you know, that Christianity is true and some of the power of the story of Christianity to help Christians think about uh, seeing God at work in the ancient world and seeing God at work protecting and encouraging and just how Christianity spread so fast um, and so far from such a small um, little insignificant place, Bethlehem, um, and from a person who was otherwise um, uninteresting to most of the world. And so I talk a little bit about that and what, what I think that means for, for the faith of Christians. Um, I also had two uh, nice little engagements with some of our listeners. Um, I had an email uh, in our uh, Facebook page from a, a fellow called Nathan Harmon. And Nathan uh, writes in to tell us that in my episode that we did on uh, Perpetua and Felicitas, we talked a little bit about their praying for the dead. And he reminds uh, us that that this is a practice that is common in Eastern Orthodox circles, um, and it's something that's important to him. Um, so uh, we, we appreciate that kind of engagement. So thank you, Nathan, for writing in. We also had uh, a comment on our page for this same episode for Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, where Timoteo Badalotti, uh, I don't think I'm, pr I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that right, my apologies, uh, but he writes in to uh, talk about the fact that maybe Perpetua and Felicitas were not seeking martyrdom so much, uh, but maybe they were just the most famous ones. Um, and so he, he talked a little bit about um, another, you know, sort of explanation for why. Um, um, I my I didn't bring my little recording thing. I didn't record it all last week. I don't know. Whatever. I just put it. I did just start the stream though. So if you miss a week, uh, it's now available on my uh, on my podcast stream. If you're interested in that, um, and uh, yeah. So welcome. Uh, this week is uh, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. Uh, this is the um, we're gonna sort of talk about the Desert Fathers. Uh, so this is sort of Christianity um, in, 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 you might say, sort of an extreme form. These people take some things very literally. Um, and uh, so I think there's, I, I hope, um, I'm going to focus on one, uh, towards the, this, the second half of the um, class is going to focus on one particular um, we could call it sin, at least sort of, sometimes it's called a spiritual disease, um, and this is called acedia. Um, and so that's why I had you read uh, the first bit from Anthony on acedia in your, in your readings, um, because I think acedia is a really fascinating um, sort of um, spiritual malaise um, that the Desert Fathers identify, which is not talked about very much. Uh, but one of my favorite contemporary writers, Kathleen Norris, says is the spiritual disease of our age. Um, and so uh, she is like if there's a, like I mean of people that have helped me in my um, sort of Christian walk, 
Kathleen Norris is a big one. I love reading her, um, and she spends a lot. She spent a lot of time in a monastery in North Dakota, um, and uh, but she was raised Presbyterian. Um, anyway, she's really fascinating. So we're going to focus on Acedia uh, towards the end. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to talk about two important desert fathers, and they are um, uh, Abba Moses uh, the Black, um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about Anthony the Great, the most famous desert monastic. Um, Abba Moses is less known, um, or Saint Moses, uh, but for one, I think that icon is a really sweet icon. Uh, <laughs> um, this, is a, this is a contemporary icon. It's not necessarily ancient. Um, and we could talk about how people write or paint icons if you are interested. But I just thought, like, he looks like he is, like, ready to take on a demon. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's kind of cool, um, and it's. But also at the same time, you read from Abba Moses, and you know that he had a very, he had a very difficult uh, experience. Like he was, I mean, you know, you could, we could just call it racism, right? I mean, the the um, even some of the other monks treated him poorly because he was black, um, and so he. I I bring him into this conversation for several reasons. One, he comes from Abyssinia, from Ethiopia, much further south. Um, and for, for two, I think he's a helpful um, person for us to consider when we think about even the sin of racism, um, that this is even within our own tradition, um, but, but also he seems to deal with it very humbly with very, um, and I don't know, he just is a, like, kind of inspiring in that way that he prevailed despite um, some of the, the attacks that he faced, even within his community of monks. Um, and so it makes me both sad uh, for him, but also I think important to recognize that um, aspect of our of our history, right? So um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a historian and theologian and whatever, um, and sometimes it's hard to go back through and then find all these things that you that, you know are embarrassing or worse than embarrassing are wrong, um, and they're part of our story. Um, and so I want to be as open as possible about that stuff. Um, you know, if we did the Middle Ages, we'd talk about the Crusades. Um, you know, we, you know, I think we should own up to our failures um, as a, as a, as the, as the church and as Christians. Um, that doesn't mean there's nothing we can learn from these people. I think there's quite a bit we can. Um, but yeah, but they also had failings. Um, so. Um, I'll, I'll use that as an introduction. Are there any, so I was thinking about doing a little recap of where we've been so far. Um, and I also wanted to like, I didn't give a lot of time for questions last week. Um, so should I, would you, does anybody have any questions that they want to get out on the table right away? Um, or should I jump into a kind of review of kind of where we've been? Any pressing questions um, that, that I maybe didn't address or didn't address well um, that come to mind from the last couple weeks? No? All right, we'll keep thinking about them. It's okay if you want to bring them up later. So I just thought I would recap. Um, so, uh, right, so we've gone through, we've, we keep going back to the timeline. I just want to keep us in mind where we're at. Jesus dies in 33 AD. And the stuff that we're going to talk about today takes place 300 years after that. 
So in 300 years, roughly the life of the United States, we could say, um, Christianity goes through a massive transformation. Um, so, from, you know, there were there, there are 12 disciples, maybe 72 people that he sends out of his followers and some women. I mean, we have a movement of 100 people at 33 AD, right? About 100 people are gathered around Christ. By the time we get to the Desert Fathers... Uh, Christianity is the religion of the empire. It is the like legally sanctioned. Uh, it's not yet the only uh, allowable um, religion, which will come as well. Uh, but it is. Um, it's so prevalent and so prevalent, uh, or so prevalent, so uh, pervasive um, that Constantine sort of says it's in my interest to consider this faith. Um, rather than his predecessors, the, the, the emperors who came before him, said, we need to kill them, we need to squash them. There have been multiple persecutions in this 300-year period where the emperors thought, we can kill this thing, we can kill this thing, we can get rid of those stinking Christians. Um, but by the 4th century, the emperors say, they're not going away. Um, so we're going to have to deal with this one way or another. Um, and I just think it's, it's fascinating. And I mean, this is one I, I sort of ended with this a little bit last week. Um, but, you know, there, there are lots of things that we can tell people about why we believe what we believe. And, you know, this is kind of our, you know, the, the comment, the way that we talk about apologetics now where we tell people, like people ask me, why are you a Christian or why do you still believe it? I mean, it is an incredible story um, that Jesus Christ, the son of a carpenter, um, dies on a cross in a, you know, in a no-name place, uh, or was born in a no-name place. He dies in Jerusalem. Um, and, uh, you know, from that, a worldwide movement is spread. Um, and in the course of 300 years, despite massive persecution from the most powerful empire that the earth had known to that point, um, they could not kill um, the Christian spirit, right? They could not kill uh, how uh, passionate these Christians were. So we're calling this Africans against the world, right? The resolve of African Christians. So we've only been focusing on what's happened here. Um, and what's happened in this area um, is a, a representative of what is taking place all across here. Um, Thomas goes all the way here. Um, Christianity spreads across the known world like wildfire. And despite every attempt to stop it, um, these Christians just keep coming back. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a, such a bizarre story. I mean, the Roman historians, there's only a couple of them who mention Christ. And in one case, at least they misspell his name. He's called Crestus rather than Christ. Um, and so we have this sort of interesting phenomenon where the Roman historians make sort of a footnote. And they're like, yeah, there was this slave guy that seemed kind of important to some Jewish people. But, he, you know, I can't even remember his name, Crestus, Christus, I'm not sure. Um, and, you know, that's for Roman historians who are telling the tales of all the great emperors who are telling the story about how they dominated the world. They call this sea what we call the Mediterranean. They just call it our sea. Look, we control this whole thing. Um, and... Um, you know, we don't even need a name for it other than it's ours. Um, and that's how they look at the world. This is our world, what we say goes. Um, and they believe their emperors were semi-divine. 
Um, and they thought that they could just include the religions of all the places where they conquered. But Christians said, like the Jewish people before them, there's one God. Um, and you can't just add to it. This is not a pantheon. Uh, this is not just like, hey, I'll get what I can from this God. I'll get what I can from this God. And we'll just sort of add it all together. The Christians, the reason they were such a threat um, was they said, no, no, you have to reject all of that. Um, none of that is how we understand who God is. Um, and we have such a great example from the Africans, from Tertullian uh, to you know, uh, uh, Perpetua and Felicitas um, in North Africa. Um, and, and we've been dealing uh, recently with Athanasius from Alexandria. So Athanasius is a, what we call an archbishop. Um, he's the like, sort of leader of the church in Alexandria, which was started by Mark, um, which we said was another African. Um, we're going to talk about Cyril of Alexandria next week, who's another <laughs> archbishop of Alexandria. Um, but this had become a, a stronghold uh, for Christianity um, at, from the time of Mark, from one of the first gospel writers, the earliest gospel, most scholars think. Um, and so Christianity had taken hold on African soil and wouldn't let go. Um, and, and I think that's just a very powerful story. Um, and we're going to transition. I, I said last week that the fourth century is a really um, important century for Christians. Um, Christianity is legal. Uh, the Council of Nicaea sort of solidifies what Christians believe about God the Father and the Holy uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's also when some Christians uh, turn to the desert. Um, <laughs> and uh, let's see, where's my map here real quick? So um, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the desert Christians. Um, so uh, we've got Alexandria up here. I think modern-day Cairo is actually kind of where we say where Babylon is there. Um, there's some... At, this is sort of interesting if you're into interpreting Revelation. Some people think that Babylon either refers to uh, Persia, but it might actually refer to um, a powerful pagan presence in, in what is modern-day Cairo. Um, but that's, you know, I, I don't really want to go into it more than that, but just sort of interesting. Um, and so the, but the Christians, uh, so this, uh, St. Anthony, we think, spent some time kind of in this area. Uh, but they just go, so uh, Christians started going to the desert to live a life of prayer. Um, and it sounds strange to us, maybe, right? You can pray anywhere. Um, but they were trying to escape the excesses of the city. So Alexandria, um, let's go back. Uh, Alexandria, Constantinople, Ephesus. Um, all these places were becoming very wealthy. Um, it was the, the desert Christians believed that it was too easy to be a Christian, um, that now that it was like the sort of enforced religion, um, there, there wasn't sort of enough like true commitment uh, to, the, uh, to the gospel and to um, God. So they said, we're just going to go <laughs> into this area. Um, and we are going to pursue God as ardently as possible, as um, most, you know, as, um, uh, and it's not, like I say, I know it sounds a little strange. Um, and here's our, uh, here's our great guys. But let's see. So I want to just general principles. Why did they go to the desert? Um, so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 17, I believe, um, he, said, he makes this claim that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Um, so 
if you're like me, um, I, you know, I was raised Baptist, uh, e like sort of evangelical, and uh, the idea of praying without ceasing seemed impossible. If I'm supposed to be talking to God all the time, how, how can I do that? Um, how can I live my daily life? If I'm always talking to God, if I'm supposed to be, and for us, prayer, for me growing up, prayer was like thinking about, okay, what, what do I need from God? What do I want to thank God for? What do I want to confess to God, right? Those are kind of the things that we would think about when we would pray. But the Desert Fathers said praying without ceasing might not be um, saying words all the time. Um, Actually, prayer for them is about resting in God and resting in God's presence. And, and the Desert Fathers would tell you that there's a way to pray with your heart at all times. Even while your mind and your body are doing other things, um, you can always be at prayer in your soul. Um, and so what they, they went to the desert in pursuit of this. How is it that we can be so close to God that our hearts are constantly at prayer? We get rid of all distraction. We get rid of all those things that might um, get in the way of us pursuing the greatest peace and the greatest joy that is known, which is in the presence of God. Um, so I'm not necessarily suggesting to you all that, that this is the only way to do that, um, but just to try to give an idea of why they did it. They also would fight temptations. So um, we know that Abba Moses was a thief, um, and uh, so in his story, um, he would uh, just like, yeah, I mean, he was a very strong man, um, and, and he came up from Ethiopia and would raid um, caravans and other things. Um, and would just steal. Uh, and that was his, you know, he was like, he's like, who can stop me? Um, and his picture, as we sh showed uh, for a minute, um, you know, this is, this is a modern uh, icon, but sort of shows like he's a big, strong man. Um, and he undergoes a massive transformation when he becomes a Christian. Um, and so he goes to the desert because he says, I have to give up this life that I knew where I made money through my own strength um, and stole um, and hurt people. And he said, I just have to get away from all those kind of temptations. Um, a lot of the other uh, desert fathers went away, for, ran away from the temptations of alcohol, gluttony, and the other big one is sex. Um, so the, all the desert fathers took a vow of celibacy. Um, there are women, too. There are uh, desert mothers. They also took a vow of celibacy. Um, so Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, right, he talks about if you need to get married, that's okay. Uh, but sort of for me, I'm going to be committed to the church. Um, so the desert fathers and a lot of early Christians followed Paul and even Jesus, who was never married, and said that maybe the most important way to live your life or the best way to live your life as a Christian isn't to be married. Um, so I know this is a little strange. Uh, I'm a married man. I love my wife. Um, so I'm not trying to say that that's not a good thing. But the, in the first several centuries of the church, the greatest good was to not be married. Um, so those who were the most spiritual, um, if you want to use that phrase, um, those who were most committed to their faith said that we shouldn't. Um, actually get married, that we should solely devote ourselves to God and to prayer. Um, it only is a later development, um, and actually Augustine is one of the ones who speaks most favorably about marriage. He wasn't married, 
Um, but he actually says some of the most uh, like encouraging things about marriage um, and says you shouldn't consider yourself better. If you, if you chose the life of not being married, you shouldn't consider yourself better than those who do. Um, but even that was radical because <laughs> um, there were a lot of the, uh, of the, Greek, of the Greek East uh, who said, no, the only way to be the most committed Christian uh, was to forego um, uh, marriage and any kind of sex. Um, yeah. Read letters of St. Patrick. He's mm-hmm. also like when he converts married people to Christianity, he's, he's like, he writes excitedly, yeah, and then they decided to both be celibate. To go. I was like, oh, even though they're married, and it's like, isn't that great? I'm like, you're weird, man. <laughs> yeah, so they're, okay, so there's a whole, there's a whole, well, that's like a thousand dates, that's later, but like, it gets, yeah. Well, it's not that much later, yeah, but, um, but yeah, so the, but that's the same principle, and actually that happens in the desert as well, so some, t- so there, there are all kinds of funny stories if you read through. So um, I gave you an excerpt from a book, um, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. And if you read through a lot of these, you actually find that it turns out like some of the desert mothers and fathers would live together and they would do some things. You know, like they weren't perfect um, in pursuing this. And sometimes they do this where they say well, we just need the companionship. Um, so we're going to stay together. But I promise, and they would tell their superior, I promise we're not having sex. We're just living in the same house. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, yeah, you can imagine. Um, but that was what they said. They were fighting their temptations. So in a sense, we could say that the early, the first three centuries, Christians were fighting the emperor. Um, they were fighting, like, or fighting for what they believed uh, against those who sought to kill them. Um, and so it was this like struggle against the empire in a way. And so, so that was a way in which Christians could sort of test their mettle. Um, how much do you really believe it? Well, you know, I'm not going to make sacrifices to the emperor. I'm not going to give away my uh, Bible to those who seek to steal it, um, which happened a lot. Um, and they said, okay, so once that's gone, once that hardship's gone, where do we go? And so many said, let's go. Uh, let's leave the major cities um, and so I use this phrase down here, the last thing. Um, they, they were seeking divine uh, apatheia. Um, so this is where we get our word apathy. Um, but I left it in Greek because I don't think it has to mean uh, without any emotion or without any, like, um, sort of what we would call sort of positive passion. Uh, but that is, they sought to be absolutely serene and absolute trust in God that is unmoved um, by the desires of too much drink, too much food, too much sex. They sought to be utterly and totally dependent on God to find satisfaction. Um, so if you heard Carlos's sermon today, um, right, he mentioned a little bit uh, this idea that God is the greatest pleasure that we can know. Um, and so, so you could say in a way that that's what the desert fathers were seeking. I mean, look, again, it looks odd. Um, they would mostly live on bread, water, and maybe nothing else um, or any kind of fruits or anything they could find. Um, but that for them was absolute happiness. So the, the phrase in the ancient world was the good life. That is the good life um, for them. Um, and so they thought, so for them, that actually was sort of pleasure. Um, but it was just pleasure in a, in a, in a positive sense in that um, they, they weren't seeking all these other things for their happiness. They were only finding their happiness and their contentment in God. Um, okay. I'll stop there for a second, and then we'll, we'll turn to our figures for the day. Um, any, you know, that's a lot of stuff. 
Um, any questions so far, Jason? Um, all right. So I'm not a historian, but so so Merton, Thomas Merton, yeah. and Henry Now, and like they are. So Merton, I know, was a hermit as mm-hmm. well. Nowen was not. Uh huh. Correct. Yeah. I mean, he was. He died in what ninety six something like. I'm that? not really sure, but yeah, recently. So he's enough. more contemporary than I realized yeah. when I first read him. Um, and Merton was what was that like in the middle part of the 20th century yeah so so they're pulling ideas about like being a desert christian christianity is that is that kind of what you're saying so like now was not obviously but merton did live that life was that whole like monk lifestyle modeled after the desert christianity yeah so sometimes we'll people will say that uh anthony the great is the first monk um, it turns out that there probably were other monks before him. Maybe this guy called Paul, uh, but but most uh, not not no not not Paul the writer of the Testament, a different Paul, Paul of the desert. Um, Jerome writes his story, uh, but yeah, basically monasticism begins here. Um, so uh, what? Yeah, what? Like um, now, Merton is a. Um, uh, which was a Carthusian, um, and he was at Gethsemane in uh, Kentucky, was where he, like, that was where his hermitage was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, like, even his ideas in some way draw on this. Um, so, monk, monakos, uh, just comes from the Greek word that means alone, which means one. It turns out that there were different ways to be Christian. So some of them would live totally alone um, in like a cave by themselves. Um, there's a story of, that we'll, I'll, I have up here about one monk who would build baskets um, and then burn them uh, whenever they, uh, because that was what, how he was making money, um, but he didn't have enough travelers by his cave. And so his cave would get too full and he would just burn everything that he made. Um, and we could talk about why he did that in a minute, but that was, so some lived totally alone. Others lived in communities. Um, so Merton lived in a community, uh, but it was a community of silent, uh, monks. Uh, but, but yeah, so there are different ways to do this, but Merton, by the end of his life, uh, he lived, he actually asked for and was granted a separate hermitage where he could live totally alone, even at Gethsemane. So there's a separate space outside of his monastery. Um, I'm a big fan of Thomas Merton, but, um, well, maybe not everything that he's written, but we could talk, you know, later. later. Um, I'm a scholar. I always have my, you know, things that I don't like. Um, but one thing that, uh, that I didn't say yet, uh, that, that I want to reiterate. So Athanasius, we talked about last week, he writes the life of, um, of this guy, Anthony the Great. So Athanasius is, you know, you read some of On the Incarnation. He's a brilliant man. He's well-educated. He's a theologian in the proper sense, um, Athanasius. He's thinking about God. Um, he's leading his church. But he spent many years in the desert getting to know Anthony the Great. So for all the early Christians, um, there was no separation. Like, so like I'm at a university, I get paid to be an academic and to teach, teach theology, but they never ask me, what's your prayer life like? They never ask me, do you go to church? They don't ask me like, you know, how is it, how are you living your life in pursuit of Christ? Like, it's almost like I could be a professional theologian and no one would ever care if I ever spent time in prayer. Um, and, and we live in a world where that's possible, <laughs> where you can study this stuff, um, and it has no uh, effect on your life. 
that would have been impossible for Athanasius and Anthony. Um, so one of my favorite Desert Fathers is a guy called Evagrius Ponticus, um, and he says, anyone who prays truly is a theologian. Um, and so prayer and theology were inseparable disciplines. Um, so if you were thinking about who God is, um, you were at prayer. Um, and, the- and theology was just written, in some cases, as prayer. Um, so that's Augustine's Confessions is just a prayer. Um, that is a really long, 13-book, huge work, but it is a work of prayer. Um, so there was no such thing as what I do, like an academic theologian. Um, that, that did not exist for them. Um, so all of these people spent time <laughs> in prayer. Not everyone stayed in the desert. Um, Athanasius went to the desert and left. He went, spent some years in prayer, got to know Anthony, wrote his story, and then he said, but I have other things to do. I've got to serve the church at Alexandria. I have to, you know, be available for people at Constantinople. Like, he moved around in, in his exile. Um, but, 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 it would, but this was a source of strength for, for him. So sometimes the monks uh, believed uh, that they were, even though they were, like, alone and secluded— um, they were still there for the spiritual nourishment of the church. Um, and in some way, what they were doing actually was for the church. Um, and so there were other people who would just come and learn from them for a while, and then they would go and do other things. Um, so it's just different callings. Uh, but but I, should, I, I, I would be remiss if I did not explain this point. That, that is, it was even hard for me to say, but, uh, or like explain that, that, yeah, you could not do theology um, with, if you weren't at prayer, if you weren't at church, if you weren't worshiping, if you weren't doing all of those things. Um, Athanasius says in one of the readings that I gave you from last week, um, he says you can't even understand these writings unless you're living a life in pursuit of God. Um, so he said, like, there's a sense in which um, you could try to read um, Athanasius and theology and these things, but you won't get it until that is your reality. Until that is who you are pursuing, and it'll make all, like more sense um, if you are committed to living it. But he basically just admits, uh, like I've met people who study this as a historical fascination and curiosity, but they're always a little bit like, I still don't quite get it. <laughs> like, what are they doing? Um, and why do they do it? So they come up with all kinds of other explanations. Well, they want power, or well, they want uh, this. Well, they, you know, they try to find any other explanation um, from the simple fact that these people were pursuing God. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, so that's why, like, sometimes I, I sort of, say I'm a historian and I put that in like scare quotes because um, I'm a theologian, right? So like for me, I pursue all of this because I'm interested, I want to know God. Um, like I want my prayer life and what I study to all be together. Um, and the Desert Fathers are a good place to go for this. So um, in the Philokalia, another collection of, of texts, um, they say that uh, the prayer, um, continuous prayer, praying without ceasing, is a way of bringing the mind into the heart, um, a unification of both your intellect and your, um, and your sort of passions. Um, and they say that what prayer does, the kind of prayer that the Desert Fathers pursued, um, creates a unity and a wholeness. Um, in your life. So you, so like, it was really easy for me to be like an intellectual. I loved school. Um, I was good at memorizing Bible verses. Um, I loved going to church, like all, like in, in the sort of, in a purely intellectual sense, I could be really good, um, at being a Christian, but that didn't necessarily mean that like in my heart, I was committed to God, right? That I was trusting in God with my life. 
Um, and the desert father said, we bring all that together. Uh, bring that all together. Don't think about one in absence of the other. Think about ways that you can merge these as one thing. Um, and so they, they prayed what's called the Jesus Prayer, um, which we think starts in the desert. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Um, and that is, uh, so the, the, what they would pray, um, they would pray the Psalms, they would pray the Lord's Prayer, and then this is, this is sort of the, the center of desert monasticism is the Jesus Prayer. Um, and this is what's been passed on uh, for generations in the Eastern Church. Um, yeah, so Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's a combination of Philippians 2 and Luke 18. So both of these are scriptural phrases. Um, but they, they believe that through this prayer, praying it continuously, um, eventually your heart would always be at prayer no matter what else you were doing. Um, and so that you could, you, you could actually do this thing. You could pray without ceasing and not have to talk all the time like I've been doing for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> um, but, but while I'm even doing this, they believed that my heart could be at prayer um, if I practiced the Jesus prayer. Um, I got a question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, this might be a long one. I don't know. Um, what kind of access to <coughs> or consideration did these monks give um, or, or, or again have access to the Old Testament? Particular, you know, I know we, we talked in the past couple weeks, you know, the New Testament had sort of come together. It had all been written. You know, there had been sort of a list of the books made and they were being passed around. But what about the Old Testament? Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like the Amish. I, I don't begrudge the monks, but this notion that, oh, to be a real Christian, you got to be a monk. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, if you're really going to be close to God, you got to be Amish. I've had lots of conversations with Amish people about this, but not monks. But, you know, when, when you read the Old Testament, particularly gen the, the early books, mm -hmm. the creation story, the development of the Jewish nation, there's no question that the, the institution of the family, the man and the wife procreating, I mean, they're, they are God's plan A mm -hmm. to accomplish his primary mission, you know, his ideas and what he put forth out there. So, I mean, were they not, did they not have access to that? Did they just ignore it? Did, you know, what did they, what were they doing with that stuff? A couple things. Uh, first and foremost, they did have the Septuagint, um, so the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, so that was, I mean, the story goes that Ptolemy um, uh, um, paid for 70 um, Jewish priests to translate from the Hebrew to the Greek. Um, there were other translations of it. There are at least four, that we know, or, well, the Hexapla has six. So Origen has... Um, at least six different versions that he's working from of the Greek uh, Old Testament. Um, and so, yeah, so they do have access. Um, now, why did they reject Genesis? Um, I, I would say a couple things. One, despite the fact that some sort of said there was this hierarchy of great Christians, that, like I, I tried to bring in Augustine and say, there were others who were a little more generous about it. And he, like if you meet a contemporary monk, they would say, we know that this is not for everyone. Um, we, we know that this is not like, you know, there's a there's a monastery in upstate New York that I used to go to when I was in seminary. 
Um, and they looked at that as being a service to that community. Um, they said, you know, this is our calling, but it's not everyone's calling, and we are here for people to go on retreat, um, but we know that not everyone should do this. So I should say, um, and also in Eastern Orthodoxy, um, if you're like a regular like church priest, parish priest, you can be married. Um, so it's only in Roman Catholicism that the, the parish priest has to be single. Um, now, if you want to move up in the ranks, you do have to be single in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, but, but they have more permission for the family and such. Um, but they do have the Old Testament. Many of them were illiterate, though. Um, and so there was a, um, you know, like, uh, actually, uh, Anthony was not illiterate. Um, but a lot of the later ones were. So that was why they would memorize the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer. They would memorize the things that they could memorize. Um, and, but, but, you know, getting, an access, getting access to these codices, uh, get, like, so the, when, when Origen is making his translation, or, well, is working with the various translations, um, you know, he's a well-funded scholar. Um, and so that was rare, right? I mean, having access to the text is very, very rare. And that's why the readings in the church were so important. So we talked about the development of the New Testament. Um, and what mattered to them was what was read in church. Because that was the only time that you were ever going to hear um, some of these things. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that you could have a Bible in your hands um, is a creation of, of, of the printing press um, and the modern world. You had to know your scripture through memorization, through regular attendance at church. Um, and so what was read there was how people would know any of these things. It's a lot. Uh, but that's, I mean, as best I can say. But they would, I mean, you know, they would have churches that they would go to, even the monks. So they would attend on Sunday. Um, and, and that was part of their life. Uh, but that would be where they would hear the rest of the Bible. So, do, do you get so kind of to the point? Do you get the sense that, like, from the perspective of the, the Desert Fathers, that some of what maybe Paul has to say in some of his letters about marriage and its relative good vis-a-vis -vis Christians and faith has kind of superseded some of the things that have been, or maybe not superseded, but kind of more fully extemporized the things that have been said in Genesis? Is that probably what they? And that's a, yeah, that's one yeah I think that could be one way to say it like mm -hmm. yeah um, I mean yeah part of this is a theology of how do the testaments work together right. um, and that you know that's a hard like can be a sort of fraught question uh, but yeah I do think that they yeah they sort of say the instantiation of God in Jesus Christ was single mm -hmm. um, and so if that's the case they work back from there mm -hmm. right or wrong that was how they would have done it. I think the Old Testament also, like, God talks about, like, eunuchs and giving them uh, um, inheritance, mm -hmm. and that's not children. And, like, Christianity is supposed to be a new family where mm -hmm. procreation doesn't have to be physical. Like, it's more spiritual, and you have spiritual children and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's, like, totally, like, the Old Testament was, like, only pro-family or whatever, and, like, we're only pro-single now. Like, I, you could see themes in both. And, yeah, I mean, that passage of... Well, I, lo I am single, and I enjoy being single, and I love that passage in seven, 1 Corinthians 7. Mm -hmm. Paul says, it's better to be single because you can focus on God. I mean, marriage is fine if you want to do that, but it's really nice to be able to focus on God. And we don't talk about that because our current form, I feel like a lot of churches feel like the ultimate good is getting married. And I don't think you should e I don't think it's either the ultimate good is not getting married, the ultimate good is not being single. It's just you can serve God in both ways. So Yeah. Yeah, not for everybody, but I don't think they were totally going rogue. Like, there's definitely... 
thieves in the Old Testament. There's like prophets, like Elijah's by himself a lot. The wandering around the wilderness. We just read that with the Jewish students today. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it, and I know too that like the the picture of what the kingdom of God looks like is different under the two covenants, which makes sense because like the way that Israel was fulfilling the covenant was as a people, as the people of God, mm. but as Christians, as, kind of, kind of, precisely, yeah, it's a, it is a different sort of family, a different sort of kingdom. Yeah. So. Yeah. You were talking about that prayer there, and have mercy upon me as a sinner, and how they focused on that, and just sort of coincidentally, because I didn't do my reading beforehand, I'm kind of scanning it while I'm listening to it. But, but one of the seven instructions mm-hmm. of Abba Moses I thought was pretty, uh, pretty cool. And he, number yeah. three is if a monk does not think in his heart that he is a sinner, God will not hear him. Yeah. The brother said, what does that mean to think in his heart that he is a sinner? Then the old man, which is Abba Moses, yeah. right? Uh, when someone is occupied with his own faults, he does not see those of his neighbor, mm-hmm. which is, I think, just kind of a cool concept because we live sort of in a society where we're constantly judging ourselves against other people. And he's just sort of saying, if you focus on asking God for mercy for your sins, you're going to be less likely to judge these other people around you and think you're better or get involved in stuff you shouldn't be. Yeah. So I actually have a question kind of to this point. Yeah. Kind of in, within the, the seven. Okay. So yeah. One of the things that kind of maybe kind of tripped me up a little bit about Moses was in his his kind of theology of dying to one's neighbor. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and it, it seems to me that like what he's articulating here is kind of uh, like an apophatic view of neighbor theology. Like he's okay. describing like all the things you shouldn't do to your neighbor. Uh-huh. Um, whereas it seems to me that like at least as it's articulated by Jesus in the New Testament that he is actually set like the verse itself is a positive definition that yeah. what like what you want to be done to you you should do to your neighbor. Yeah. Um, do you have any say but like is this kind of just a quirk of the ascetics that they focus more on on this kind of like negative, an, a, a yeah. negative sort of definition? Or? Well, I mean, I think there's uh, one of the stories is he, uh, they get mad at him for feeding someone. Right. Yeah, so he was supposed to be fasting, uh, fasting and he mm-hmm. says, hey, look, I needed to feed my neighbor. Right. So I don't think it's a total rejection of right. it. I think, I mean, you know, it might just be a different way to say mm-hmm. that and, yeah, focus on the negative. Um, but yeah, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, and, and so, like, when I, like, I should also point out, when I offer these things as stuff to read, like, I'm not necessarily saying, like, this is how we should all think right, about right. how we should handle our neighbor. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, in my explanation of that, I, I would just say that, um, yeah, I don't think, I think that he, um, they are trying to find a way to be humble. Right. Um, and trying to find a way to not just be, so up in everybody else's mm-hmm. business. Right. Um, and so I, I sort of look at, you know, sometimes we think about pendulum swings. I used to teach seventh grade boys, um, and they were always concerned with what the other seventh grade boys were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, if I could just get these seventh grade boys um, to think first about what they were doing mm-hmm. and not be so concerned with being everyone else's boss, um, <laughs> I would have done a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if that was the one thing I could offer these boys, mm-hmm. um, is, is it like, then, you know, 
then, then maybe uh, there's hope for the next generation. Right. Uh, but they always wanted to be up in someone's business. Um, and they were. In, and I was like, what are you doing? You forgot to do your homework. Stop worrying about the fact that he didn't do his. Right. <laughs> A real votes and logs situation. Yeah. Th- well, that and they were also like when someone would say something bad about them, uh, they would also say, well, he said this. Well, he said this. Is it true? Are you, are you stupid? Are you mean? No, you're not. Um, if you know who you are, it doesn't matter uh, right. what they say. Or in some cases, yeah, one of, one of my boys was a liar. And so, yeah, no, you're a liar. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but good question. Uh, so, I, I mean, let's see. I, let's skip to um, Abba Moses. Um, yeah, so I say, so I uh, talk a little bit about the power of repentance, right? So he becomes a Christian, um, and uh, and it sort of changes his whole outlook. Um, and uh, it was so. It, it, uh, yeah, let's let's see. I wanted to do the one. Um, let's, I want to read a couple of these. Um, so we, the first one, we read of Abbot Serapion, another one of these. There are lots of these monks, right? So this book is full of lots of these desert fathers who sold his last book, a copy of the Gospels, and gave the money to the poor, thus selling the very words which told him to sell and give to the poor. Um, so one of the things that's sort of interesting about the desert fathers, are they, I mean, going to your point about... Um, care for the neighbor, um, they would sell, you know, he sold the most precious thing that he had um, to give. So a lot of these guys, um, uh, uh, Anthony um, was supposedly a wealthy man, and he actually read these very words, uh, that's, uh, well, or actually we think it was the rich young ruler. Mm -hmm. Um, When Anthony read the story of the rich young ruler, or actually heard it read in church, um, he said, it is now my, I feel like it is my calling to give, to do what Christ says. Um, You know, sometimes I, we, I used the word literally earlier or literal. Um, they took a lot of this stuff literally um, in a way that literalists often don't want to take it literally. Um, there's a story that Origen made himself a eunuch for the kingdom of God. Um, if, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Um, and there's a story that Origen took that literally. Um, and so I'm not, again, not advocating it, but they, they took some of this stuff very seriously. So Christ says, you know, we are for the poor. Um, they meant it. Um, and these, you know, and again, I'm not, yeah, anyway, just, so I, I don't think that they're totally like negative towards their, their neighbor, but um, some other good stories from Abba Moses. A brother in seat happened to commit a fault, uh, and the elders assembled uh, and sent for Abba Moses to join them. He, however, did not want to come. The priest sent him a message saying, come to the community of the brethren is waiting for you. So he arose and started off, and taking with him a very old basket full of holes, he filled it with sand and carried it behind him. The elders came out to meet him and said, What is this, Father? The elder replied, My sins are running out behind me, and I do not see them. Uh, And today I come to judge the sins of another? They, hearing this, said nothing to the brother but pardoned him. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like the woman caught in adultery. Um, there's, you know, uh, but yeah, they, I mean, just like, 
the, the, like one of the things when you read through these is there are a lot of like um, word images or something or like or like ways in which they do things that demonstrate uh, what they want to say. So in this case, he used the image of the sand falling out of a basket. Like this is how many my sins are, um, and uh, you want me to tell someone else what they did wrong. Um, and so I think you know putting putting this within the. Um, context of Abba Moses's life, a person who um, was a, was a thief, was a runaway, was a vagabond, was um, whatever you want to say. Like he was so transformed by the power of the gospel uh, that that he went to live a life of prayer, um, and but also knew his sins so well. Um, he's like, look, I've done a lot of really bad things, um, and. So when you ask me to tell someone else what they should or shouldn't do, or, uh, or not, not what they should or shouldn't do, uh, but you ask me to judge them, to, to give a punishment to them, um, what can I say? Um, I have done so much worse. Um, so yeah, anyway, I like, I like that uh, story. Um, I think this is the one, yeah, this is the one where he cooks for them. Uh, so someone uh, gets mad at him uh, because he's cooking when he's supposed to be fasting, but he's cooking for a neighbor. Uh, so those are just a couple of uh, of the uh, of the stories from Abba Moses that I wanted to uh, I wanted to highlight. Are, are there other ones that you wanted to highlight or that you had questions on from Abba Moses? Talking a bit about like <clears throat> the racism. So yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, the the does that story? Oh, one. I also just kept writing, reading more. I bought that book actually. Oh, I really good. Enjoy it. But yeah, they keep having stories like they're gonna test him. Uh-huh. So just we're testing of each other. So it's not kind of nice. But um, yeah, they test him by like being racist towards him, and then he also responds saying like, "You don't treat me like a human, but I'm not human." Or this really weird like I don't know. Yeah, yeah. he says he's not human. Yeah, not. I was like, "Well, no, man, you are." <laughs> Hello, gets you. Yeah. Um, I mean, there could be a couple different things of what's going on. Um, I mean, the um, so in I, I don't know how much um, how do I want to say this? Um, there's a sense in which Christ is the only true human, um, and so like when we say that people are created in the image of God, we're like part of what we're doing is trying to affirm their dignity, mm-hmm. um, which is true. But there's another sense in which um, because that image is so marred by sin, we're not fully human yet. Um, that is, we have not perfectly um, um, imitated Christ. Um, so in the Christian life, so sometimes the way that the Greek fathers and some of the church fathers would talk about this sort of thing was to say, the only truly human person was Christ. So Christ, while at the same time fully God, is also fully man, and fully in that sense is the complete, the perfect, the um, you know the the one without blemish. Um, and so the Christian life is being formed, reformed into the image of Christ, the only one who lived out his image, his uh, yeah, his full humanity. So I think part of what Abba Moses might be saying is, in a sense, I have not arrived. Um, I have not lived up to um, the the bargain, um, sort of. Yeah. Any other ones from Abba Moses? Yeah. So he faced some racism, and a lot of times he would just sort of um, downplay it, um, and he would sort of like almost seem to excuse it. Um, which you know, I mean, it, it's it's hard <laughs> as, as a white heterosexual cis male, you know, this is sort of a hard thing to talk about. Like, I, you know, have benefited in certain ways from my, um, my, like, 
I don't know where I come from or my identity or whatever. But it, it struck me as a little bit like Jackie Robinson, um, right? We talked, like uh, Branch Rickey said, for the first couple of years, you just have to um, it, take the re insults um, and find a way to to like live through it. Um, and eventually, um, he sort of turned him loose um, after a few years of it. But I, I don't know, I think there might be a sort of sense in which like, you know, I'm just so grateful to be here, um, which is not how he should have to feel. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I don't mean to say that this is the posture that everyone should always take for all time, but, but I get the sense maybe that's what he was doing was like, I also love the story, speaking of Jackie Robinson, I don't know if you like baseball, but Buck O'Neill, um, there's a great uh, book called The Soul of the Negro Leagues. Um, and Buck O'Neill, despite all of his, um, besides, you know, he never got to play in the major leagues because he was black. Um, he was one of the greatest first basemen in the Negro Leagues. Uh, but he had sort of this generosity of spirit his whole life. Um, and so like, and just hearing his story um, was sort of like an inspiration, like, and, and he was contrasted a little bit with Willie Mays, who was supposed to be pretty angry, and rightfully so. Like, I don't mean to denigrate or to excuse, or to say that he shouldn't have reason to be angry, but like reading Buck O'Neill, you can feel the sadness, but the hope as well. Um, and so I, I guess I think a little bit of Abba Moses like that, like, you know, he's trying to find a way to be hopeful um, despite all the crap that he had to go through. Well, we don't have time to do Acedia. <laughs> the spiritual so Acedia is uh, the noonday demon um, comes from Psalm 91.6 you need not fear the pestilence that walks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday and I'll just say quickly that was the reading from uh, Anthony of the Desert mentions Acedia um, but I feel this every day uh, I eat lunch about noon um, and the first thing I want to do is take a nap um, or not do anything for the next hour or two, but because I have a weird schedule, sometimes I can uh, just sit on the couch or whatever and sort of wait for it to pass. Uh, but acedia is sometimes translated as like, is, uh, it, like in the West we incorporated it with sloth, um, but it's more than sloth. Um, that's all I can say for now. Um, we'll, we'll do some more on acedia next week. I may... Uh, I may talk to Carlos. We may do another week yeah. uh, because uh, I also haven't even done Augustine. We'll take a month. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I haven't even done Augustine and, you know, uh, I lecture on Augustine for hours. So, uh, <laughs> But anyway, that's a little hint at, at Acedia, but they give different ways to think about how to work through this sort of listlessness that comes. So they didn't have it all. Like when they would go to the desert, it wasn't easy. It was never easy. Um, and even they, so the Cedia was the sort of the thing that plagued them. They didn't want to pray anymore. Um, and they would get to that point, like, I don't know, like for me, you know, you'd get to that point where like, I don't even know what words to say. I don't know. I don't feel like praying. I don't want to pray. And they called this acedia. Um, and this was just this, like, it's not like you're lazy really. So it's not really sloth. Um, but you just sort of the joy was sucked out of you. Like a malaise. Yeah, a malaise. And so they called that acedia. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk more about their uh, solutions for Acedia next week. And we'll do a little bit of Cyril of Alexandria. Um, his is pretty tough, but uh, I'll send out the readings. Um, he's, he's great, um, but, but yeah, a little can be a little hard. Um, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This has been another week of Africans Against the World in the History of Christian Theology podcast. We appreciate you listening.